Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Miles. I'm joined with Greg, and we, we have a continuing uh, coverage of our Leipzig campaign. Uh, we're actually having a very special episode, uh, the peace talks. As you know, we played out the spring campaign. Uh, it worked pretty well for the French. I'm sure all of you are very happy about that. Uh, but now we have to do the uh, peace talks. Rather than Greg and I just make up stuff, uh, we thought we would get some experts. Hello, folks. I'm Zach White, historian, podcaster, battlefield guide, master of no trades, but a jack of many of them, quite frankly. Um, my podcast is the Napoleonic Wars podcast, unimaginatively titled It Does What It Says on the Tin. Um, but I'm also a historian um, specializing in crime and punishment, and particularly the history of the British Army during this period. I'm uh, Alexander Mikhaverintsev. I am a professor of history and uh, a holder of the Ruth Herring Knoll Endowed Chair at Louisiana State University in Shreveport. Uh, like my friend Zach, I specialize in Napoleonic history, uh, spe um, uh, especially on, on the coalition uh, that was uh, opposing Napoleon uh, all through the Napoleonic Wars. I have uh, written on various aspects of Napoleonic Wars and, more, you know, in, in more recent years, I'm kind of switching up gears and moving into the into the bigger question of how were these wars actually paid for. So I want to branch out and, like Zach, be a, a jack of all uh, of many trades, though not master of any one of them. Excellent. So what we're going to do is Greg and I will, will be in character. Greg is the Tsar of Russia, and I am the housewife's favorite, Napoleon. Uh, and we're going to make our pitches, and then Alex and Zach are going to debate uh, without our interjection, and they're going to tell us what they think the potential outcome is. And, and remember, our campaign is varied from the historical aspects, so we're going to be a little different from what people may think of the Leipzig campaign, because we'll probably have different starting positions. So uh, please don't hold that against Zach and Alex. They, and any historical inaccuracies are solely the result of Greg Wackham. That's a hell of an introduction, Miles. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Zach, Alex, it's a pleasure to have you both uh, with us. Thank you so much for joining us. But now it is time for Miles and Greg to be no more. I, from this moment onward, am his excellency, uh, Tsar Alexander I. Miles, of course, is the Corsican ogre, the pretender, Napoleon Bonaparte. And as we get into our summer negotiations for this armistice, uh, I would like to offer up a few priorities that I have as the czar. These are, I feel, the, the most important prerogatives that I would be advocating in these summer talks that I will have my diplomats take to the French uh, for our two uh, Napoleonic experts to weigh in on. So I have three priorities as the czar. And I'm going to list them in order of what I feel are the most important to the least important. My most important priority this summer is a diplomatic one, not with the French. It's actually with our ally, the Austrians, the Habsburgs. Uh, the Austrians, of course, have been secretly part of our coalition for many months, really, and since, since the end of the invasion of Russia. And now they're ready, they say, to come fully on board uh, with the coalition and engage, which they did historically in the fall. But I don't want to take that for granted in our campaign. Uh, we did have some differences in our version of the campaign. Berlin has fallen to the French. I know that is a symbolic political prize, but one the Austrians might be looking at. 
So I do want to make every diplomatic effort this summer to reassure the Austrians that we were clearly willing to engage the French in field battles, even at a numerical disadvantage. We did not suffer any major battlefield reverses to the French, only minor tactical defeats. Also, in a major change of history, we have taken Hamburg in Napoleon's rear on the Lower Elba. This is a huge economic engine, a major political prize in Germany, and I think an incredibly destabilizing factor for Napoleon's satellite states in Germany. So yes, we have lost Berlin. Trading it for Hamburg, I think, is, is actually a good trade for the Allies. So the strategic picture that we have in our game is not all that dissimilar from the overall strategic picture the Austrians saw in 1813 in the fall when they entered immediately into the coalition. Uh, I want to encourage the Austrians to do so. And honestly, as the czar, if I have to dangle some minor prizes to the Austrians, I'm happy to do so. Maybe a little piece of newly reoccupied Poland. Happy to carve that up for the Austrians. Perhaps we toss them a little bit of Saxony even. That could be in play. The Saxons are still in the French camp. Maybe in 1814, I even offer to give uh, give the Austrians a expeditionary corps to send into northern Italy to help with their reconquest. Italy, not really a priority for me, the czar. Happy to leave that area of influence to the Austrians. So priority number one in the summer truce talks is not with the French. It's with the Austrians. After that, I'll be honest, everything for me, His Excellency, is kind of gravy. Uh, I feel that we're in an excellent position moving into the summer. So if the chessboard stayed exactly as it were, I would be quite happy moving into the fall. But if we could move a couple minor pieces around, I guess I would be I would be pleased with that. Um, if Miles Napoleon is looking to do a little bit of horse trading, I'm, I'm open to some horse trading. Um, a low priority issue for him, but one that would be nice for me would be maybe to talk about a couple of those French fortresses on the uh, on the Oder River, uh, particularly Kustrin right outside of Berlin. Uh, also, Glogau. These are two French-held fortresses that the French still have weak garrisons in, but they do occupy them. They're in my rear area. So uh, I would be open to, to some horse trading where the Allies take possession of one or both of those fortresses. Uh, in the spirit of cooperation and fairness, I would even be willing to parole the French troops who are in those fortresses and return them to French ranks, allowing them free passage back to their emperor. So those are both on the table for me. I suspect that the emperor will be interested in the return of Hamburg because of the problems it presents in his rear. He, he may ask for Hamburg. And what I would like to tell my diplomats is that I would like to keep possession of Hamburg. I think it's more useful in allied hands. Um, would I ever give it up? Sure, I'm a man of reason, a man of, of great education and wisdom. I would be willing to trade Hamburg for a price, and it would have to be a king's ransom, in this case a czar's ransom, uh, for me to give it up. Uh, we could certainly get into what that would entail, but it would certainly have to entail Berlin or Dresden, all of the Oder fortresses, possibly Stettin as well. Um, and if Napoleon isn't willing to meet my price, I'm happy to keep Hamburg as a threat in his rear. That that would be more than fine with me. Uh, Blucher, of course, ended our spring campaign sort of trapped between two French forces. 
Uh, naturally, he himself is able to ride through the lines, but he does have 30,000 men in a bit of an awkward position. I would like to see those men uh, get out of that encirclement position uh, along the ocean so uh, they could go in the direction of Hamburg or back towards Stettin. I'm open to Napoleon's presentation on uh, how he would like to handle those 30,000 troops. The last issue that I would like to bring up as the czar uh, is my lowest priority, but it's on the table. Uh, if Napoleon would like to extend the summer armistice by a week, two weeks, a short period of time, I'm open to a brief extension of the summer armistice. Not a long extension. We want to get back to campaigning here. I'm just, uh, I want to mention that from my perspective, it's on the table if it's something the French are interested in. Uh, at that point, I will turn the floor over to the Corsican, uh, uh, I mean Napoleon, the emperor of the French. Were either one of you hearing the annoying buzzing of a fly? You know, I, I, I really want to apologize for my, uh, for, for my, my, my future Russian subjects. They, they don't really lack, they lack in, in the social graces as, as we've all come to expect. Uh, I am Napoleon, I'm France. And I come to you to talk about how we create a lasting peace, but more importantly, how we protect Europe from the real threat, which is Russian sovereignty. And so my first uh, uh, outreach is to the Austrians, my dear brother-in-law. We have been allies for a short time. We've had a fruitful, the heir to my throne is a member of your household. And I come to you not with empty promises of potential giving you baubles that you join the election, but actually to ask you to stay your hand for one month and wait to see how I deal with these upstart Russians and Prussians. I know that you are, your martial spirit has been raised, but you're also hesitant to join the fight and I think that's wise. I think if you wait one month, you may see who the real victor is and can decide what is best for Austria. Uh, I realize that uh, that is a, a big decision that may upset your allies for a short period of time. Um, and I think I need to offer you something tangible. So I'd like to return to you, Aluria, uh, on the Italian coast and allow you to decide what happens to the Duchy of Warsaw. You may take it as your own. You may deal it to, the, uh, to your allies to appease them. But the key for me is that you wait one month before you decide to join the, uh, to join the coalition or potentially join me. And I guess remember, the real fear we have is the Russians taking dominance over Europe. And I know that's also one of your big fears. So that's my first, my first point. My second point is Boucher and his troops. Uh, I will allow them safe passage to Hamburg if Hamburg is declared an open city and there are no military units within two hexes of it, which would be 20 miles in our, in our language. Uh, the Army of North can go there, but if not, then Blucher and his troops can wither away uh, and starve. Uh, I am fine with that outcome either way. Um, but at this point, 
you know, we're, we, we, that's where we are. If the allies with the, hold on to Hamburg, then I'll just have to take it from them. Um, but that's where I am. Um, and lastly, the last point is in order for us to have a successful uh, peace, we need to separate our armies. The most tragic thing would be an inadvertent action by overzealous subordinates. Uh, most of my, 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 my generals, they are longing to renew the fight. So I would suggest that the allies remove their armies to the eastern shore of the order uh, for deployment. Uh, and I will move my armies to the western shore of the Alps. And that way we'll have a large space between us. Uh, and, and that way we can keep the peace. Those are my three things for the peace talks. Uh, again, we're offering you tangible, real value. My, my dear brother-in-law, just to stay your hand and, and make, make the best decision you can for Austria. That's we it. have the opportunity for rebuttals at this point and, and counter arguments and points of clarification. <laughs> yes, you do. I think you could both ask questions of the czar or Napoleon um, in addition to speaking to each other and your role as arbiters for the truce. Alex, if I may, I have a question for Napoleon regarding those fortresses. Um, Napoleon, if you want this demilitarized zone between the Elbe and the Oder, which is an interesting proposal that I'd be prepared to um, give time to uh, your emperor-ness. Um, what do you plan to do about those fortresses? I think those fortresses, the, the troops of those fortresses are not mobile. Uh, they would be retained by the French. I see. And Alexander, what's your reaction to um, this demilitarized zone proposal, Your Excellency? Uh, I'm surprised to learn of the demilitarized zone. Um, I am I am open, actually. I am open to the discussion of the demilitarized zone, but that would have to include vacating any fortresses by either side uh, in the demilitarized zone. Right now, that includes Dresden, which is a fortress that the French occupy with about 30,000 troops. Uh, so if Napoleon is, is serious about this proposal, then he would be serious about vacating that fortress clearly uh, falling in the middle of the demilitarized zone i also find it very suspect that he wants to leave three french fortresses along my portion of the demilitarized zone the odor but i suppose that i would be okay with that if the allies are allowed to occupy three fortresses on his side of the demilitarized zone on the elbow as usual the russians are asking for things they don't have uh, uh i i think you know one alexander should look at a map and realize that he's on one side of the odor, we're on the other side of the L, and Dresden is on my side of the L. So that's off the table. Um, this is this is a take it or leave it offer. Uh, I will retain the uh, the fortresses that we spent so much French blood to 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 detain, but we'll keep our field armies separated by those two great rivers. Uh, if he wants to have a potential for an early engagement, then that then that's the risk he chooses to take. Any other questions from our historians? So uh, for this question for the for, uh, for the allies, I see uh, the Russians are present, but I don't see the Prussian king. Is he subservient to the Russian interests? Oh, obviously, the king of Prussia is a crucial and equal part of our alliance. He um, he's been detained 
by other matters. Uh, as as the czar, I I am serving my appropriate role as arbiter of these decisions. Okay. All, all I can point out to my my dear brother-in-law in, in Austria is observe how the King of Prussia has been treated by his allies. I um I am interested in Napoleon's offer to the Austrians. This is, of course, something that I would love for our historians as our, our diplomats to discuss. I suspect that word would leak from our summer truce talks very quickly that Napoleon has willingly offered up the Duchy of Warsaw. He currently has over 25,000 Polish troops en route to his position in central Germany. And I do intend to make them aware that they have been immediately offered up as bait to the Austrians, which I suspect may influence their decision to join his army. And I'll counter with, how can you believe Russian propaganda? <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think Miles and I have made uh, enough of a presentation for you for now. You're certainly welcome to ask us additional questions. But at this point, we would love for the two of you as historians to put us in the right frame of mind and context for historically, what were the priorities in these summer talks in 1813? What, what did the real Napoleon and the real allied commanders hope to get out of this truce? Because it is quite controversial that Napoleon even agreed to it in the first place. Uh, so set the stage for us a little bit with the historical background, and then let's have some fun. Let's play armchair general yep. and talk about how the truce talks might produce something or nothing as a result of the positions that we find ourselves in right now in the war game. And uh, Alex, why don't we, why don't we kick this off with you to help us set the stage a little bit for the historical truce talks? What were the two sides hoping to get out of that in the summer of 1813? Um, Napoleon uh, famously later on, of course, in, in hindsight, describes pleasures as one of his fundamental mistakes and 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 it was um so um we we know the key reasons why he needed the armistice but you know, we're still debating whether those reasons justify this uh surrendering the strategic initiative to the to the coalition and of course uh, allowing it to not just regroup in terms of military force but uh, to score a, a, a remarkable diplomatic um success with austria for Napoleon, the key factors are, uh, of course, the uh, after effects of the Russian campaign. We know that he took over half a million men, actually close to 680,000 um, men into Russia, uh, and only a, a small number of them got out. Um, equally important um, to the human losses is the loss of, of the uh, military uh, horses of the, of, of, of the cavalry which I'm sure uh, is factored in, in, in your game and, and probably is one of the key reasons why the Allies suffered three setbacks and yet are still able to fill the, uh, an army. Um, so for Napoleon, one of the crucial elements here is to somehow rebuild uh, he, the, his military capacity, especially in cavalry, uh, uh, but also in artillery. We often forget that Napoleon took well over uh, 1,200 cannons into uh, Russia and only was able to get out with a few dozen, uh, which required him to, uh, to strip much of France of, uh, of actually uh, sizable um, of, of, of artillery that could be used in field, 
but even then, um, he will be struggling until really the fall uh, to 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 bring sufficient artillery to, um, in, in the field. So that's kind of the military side of it. Men, horses, guns. Um, but he also wants to test the waters with, with, in terms of diplomacy. Um, and he wants to see uh, here two things. Uh, one is how uh, strong the Russo-Prussian alliance is. And notwithstanding the assurances from the Tsar, uh, the absence of the Prussian king is, is, is really glaring. Um, and of course, Napoleon is aware of, of certain uh, changes underway in Austria, and he's willing to discuss the, uh, the uh, not the alliance which the Tsar uh, suggested that we already he already had with Austria. I would remind the Tsar that official alliance is actually between France and Austria, and it has been there since early 1812. So formally, the the, uh, the Kaiser has commitments. Uh, it's whether Napoleon is willing to enforce those commitments and actually have uh, the, Tsar, uh, the uh, Kaiser do what is expected of him. And there is this famous thing um, seen when at one of the uh, meetings with the uh, with Metternich, uh, Kaiser famously say, uh, tells him, first, let me have my alliance back, kind of the freedom back, and then I'll fit any settle that you will choose. And I think that's, uh, of course, the sentiment that Napoleon is well aware of. So these are, for the French side, the crucial elements. Zach? Yeah, I'd agree with everything that Alex says there. I mean, for me, I probably fall slightly more on the side that whilst Napoleon sort of needs this armistice, actually the Allies need it more. That's probably my my stance on it. Um, when you think about the killed and wounded and the six statistics for Napoleon's army, he's got an estimated 90,000 sick um he's lost about twenty-five thousand killed or wounded the the army has done so well and much so far so fast that it's starting to outstrip its supplies that loss of momentum is just about tangible and so in some respects this is sort of the slightly cautious move that napoleon takes in that sense of one defeat at this point could have been utterly catastrophic for him equally with hindsight, we can look at this situation and say, well, actually, one more victory, and he probably would have been in a position to dictate a another significant peace settlement. Um, so it's Alex makes a really good point, but with, with hindsight, we do sort of look back at this and sort of question whether or not it was the right call. But in a lot of respects, it sort of looks like the sensible call, to me at least. And I think both sides hope that there's an opportunity to use this time to finally get Austria to commit one way or the other, which, as we know, ends up being what actually happens, although it doesn't go the way Napoleon wishes. Um, I think it's also a really interesting period in terms of the role of individuals, Metternich particularly, um, really embracing that sort of whisperer behind the thrones um, sort of role Alex I'm I'm very interested in your opinions on Metternich because my feeling is that Metternich is probably more in favor of of Austria throwing its hat in the ring of the allies than than the emperor is um I I get the feeling that Francis would have taken some of the the concessions that were on offer from Napoleon but it's it's Metternich who feels 
less inclined to um, to uh, accommodate those. What, what's your reading of that? I think so. I, um, this is, a, I think, a, one of the uh, interesting questions for the uh, players themselves, whether the the uh, factor uh, for outside interference like that, um, the, the the role of individuals uh, that are not directly commanding the army. Maybe it's a die. Maybe it's a role of a die uh, to see if uh, Metternich actually makes two planchets or if his carriage overturns and he dies, which would have been uh, a wonderful thing. Um, but one of the things, thing. thing <laughs> I, can, I can see it. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that is interesting is that um, Russians consider uh, Russians are offered or at least expressed the readiness to compromise with with Austria on the issue of Poland, Saxony, and as he put, military support in northern Italy. But on the French side, there is only. Uh, an offer of Warsaw and Illyria, which have been, which would have been uh, quite inadequate in, in 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 the light of Austrian pretensions, because Austrians were thinking far uh, uh, bigger, uh, greater uh, picture than simply uh, gobbling up the remaining part of of what used to be Poland or uh, recovering the measly provinces in Illyria. We know that when Peternik does come to meet Napoleon, the, the Austrian demands actually surprise him because what is at stake? Not just the Duchy of Warsaw, not just Illyria, but Italy, Spain, Holland, Confederation of the Rhine, which is to say Central Europe, including uh, uh, Switzerland as an add-on. So we, we, we see here an Austrian vision for a grand restructuring of Europe that they would uh, like to see rather than Napoleon reaching out and, and offering them uh, crumbs from his table. So I think in that sense, the Russian offer is far more enticing than, than what Napoleon is, is dangling in front of the Austrians. It probably is also quite uh, annoying to the Austrians that he keeps referring to the, to the Kaiser's brother-in-law, his father-in-law. Napoleon has to have a mastery of his facts. Um, and of course, that is a reminder that probably is not a good one, since we know that Kaiser was not particularly in favor of that marriage to start with. <laughs> and reminding, of, uh, reminding him that his beautiful daughter is in the hands of an augur might not be a, a good thing, something that Metternich certainly uh, uh, did a lot to prod him uh, to action. Um, I think for me, what is interesting in this scenario, and I think what is in many respects a, a change uh, from a major change from the uh, uh, historical uh, reality, is is the fall of Berlin, um, because um, that is a big deal to the Prussians. Where are they now? We know that when the last time Berlin has fallen, the uh, Prussian royal family has to retreat to Königsberg. Are they again in Königsberg? Who are they? To quote, maybe uh, a, a, a misquote, or oh, maybe okay, a mis misstated by the Tsar, but the fact that he said that he's in, been detained can be interpreted in, in two ways. Is he detained by poor roads and rains, or is he detained as in detained uh, against his own will, so he doesn't make a separate deal? 
with, it, with Napoleon. So that's one element of the story. The second element um, I think that is also interesting is that unlike the, uh, um, the historical campaign in which the Allies suffered two defeats, I think we here talk about three defeats, right? Um, and it defeats of that nature are bound to have an issue, uh, an impact on, on the morale. So yes, I think the numbers we have is uh, 160,000 Russian Russian soldiers in, 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 in the field. But what are the what is the quality of these troops? What is the morale of these troops? In the historical case, we know that uh, both Prussians and Russians uh, generals, especially Alexander, had significant concerns for the uh, morale of the army in the wake of Bautzen and Lutzen. To the degree that Langeron, Alexander Langeron, who commanded a corps uh, in, in the Russian army, uh, seriously suspected that the war will end soon and not in favor of the Allies. And he has a wonderful um, discussion of it where he lays out the vision of it of an army that uh, of the allied army that uh, will not be able to sustain um, the 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 offensive any any further offensive by Napoleon. He spoke about the lack of ammunition. He spoke about the internal demoralization. Uh, and uh, interestingly, he was also speaking of the desperate need to uh, to retreat beyond order, uh, which is what Napoleon I think has in mind right now. But certainly was considered in 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 actual in actuality um so the fall of berlin would have exasperated the already existing problems right um the question i think is then how do we account for it in in, in the game to what degree the demoralization can be played especially kind of increased or added on to what we we know was already happening um the third element and i'll i'll see to zach the third element is that of outside allies besides Austria. What is the role of Britain? Now here, the fact that Hamburg has fallen is very interesting because it's, it, it opens the possibility of maybe uh, an expeditionary force uh, sent uh, by, by the British uh, with the help of their Royal Navy. The question will be how much of a force they can spare considering the commitments in Spain. Uh, but Last we checked, they were doing pretty well in Spain. Uh, we are not aware yet, <laughs> not aware yet that there will be a, a French ass whooping coming uh, in June. Uh, but maybe they can spare a few thousand troops to support, uh, I guess, Wittgenstein in, in, in Hamburg and post something serious there. Um, Sweden, that's also an, an, an important consideration here. Sweden um, has a secret negotiation with, with Russia. Uh, can Swedes enter the fray openly? Uh, uh, and how many troops they will bring over? Alex makes a really good point because, of course, historically, Britain's main role during all of this is to throw money at people as if it's going out of fashion. Um, so something like two million ends up going to the Russians and the Prussians. I think it's about half a million gets offered to the Austrians. Um, and that's in old money, not modern money. So you can see the, the scale and then there's investments of weaponry and, and ammunition and all the rest of it. Um, I My sense is that perhaps that's all that Britain can offer in this scenario when you consider the War of 1812 is going on at the same time. 
Um, and I also think that Wellington would probably have had an aneurysm if anyone had suggested to him that rather than receiving reinforcements for a continuation of his campaign on what he would have considered a sort of second front, um, the Britain was then going to divert those troops to um, to another theatre. Of course, historically, Britain does send a very, very small contingent um, to uh, Central Europe, but in terms of significance, it's British historians might like to big it up, but in reality, it's it's a minimal um, deployment there. Um, I like the point that Alex made about the the Prussian king being detained uh, you can't help but wonder if the allies have learned something from napoleon's handling of the spanish royal family at fontainebleau uh, <laughs> there might be parallels there i mean they're trying to learn from him on the battlefield perhaps they're trying to learn from him diplomatically as well i just hope the austrians draw the right conclusion for their fate <laughs> um <laughs> oh they're paying attention i'm sure <laughs> i mean you'd have to be mad not to right um uh, I I find the prospect of delaying the Austrians a really interesting one. Um, I appreciate that for the benefit of the scenario, actually, you're going to have the Austrians come in. Um, but the big problem that we have here, of course, is Napoleon's winning. I mean, Napoleon was winning historically. And that was always part of the problem with these negotiations. Um, and much though I'm not known for my sympathy towards Napoleon, I do have the feeling that Actually, the Allies are asking too much. They're asked, they're sort of trying to pay Napoleon with his own coin um, in a lot of these instances. And within your scenario, Napoleon's winning even more so. So Alex is absolutely right to flag the significance of Berlin and the potential for that to the occupation of Berlin to have destabilized Prussian inclinations to continue the fight. Um, so Berlin has to be on the table uh, uh, in these negotiations if they're going to get anywhere to the point where I think Napoleon has to relinquish Berlin, but it then has to be compensated for that. Alex, is, is that your reading? Um, yeah. Um, yes, and, and I don't wanna, you know, again, uh, take up time from you. So uh, if, if you have a further point to make or go ahead go okay. ahead you're, you're the expert here i'm, I'm just here to i think fail at one... looking pretty <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the interesting i think yeah sides here is that uh, let me ask the czar who is actually in command of the army so uh, a point of game clarification we do not have a player playing as the prussian king so that that's not a role that a player occupies and the czar me I'm actually not in command of the Russian army either. Uh, in the spring campaign, Wittgenstein was the was the player in command of the Russian army. That was a player position occupied by Josh. Interestingly, this summer, during the truce talks, we are allowing our Patreon supporters to decide something that the Tsar had to decide historically, which is, was Wittgenstein going to remain in command? Or will perhaps Barclay de Tolle be put in command of the army? We're putting that to our patrons in a fan vote, uh, and they'll get to pick. But it is a, it's a Russian field general who's in command. The czar is a more of an advisory ceremonial role, but an important role in our diplomatic talks. Uh, so it's, right. not that, it's not that the king of Prussia is actually being detained or that he's not an important player. I... I'm sure he would be an important player <laughs> if, if we had a player to play him. 
Uh, and I would like to pull at that thread that the two of you guys are hitting on right there in terms of the importance of Berlin historically. I know Napoleon really wanted to take Berlin in 1813. He, he puts a real push into that. And I'm interested to see what, what your impressions are of the actual significance of Berlin. Because by this point, the Prussians are very committed to the conflict. They are in full mobilization. The sort of liberation of greater Germany is a theme that's flaming across the land. So is is that a train that could even be stopped at this point? The the occupation of Berlin? Um, do, you, do you actually think that that might have derailed serious Prussian commitment to the conflict? I, I, I mean, Alex, feel free to oh, tell on, me sir. if I'm, I'm talking nonsense here, but my sense is that you it's almost too easy to look at this situation and not draw immediate comparisons with the 1806 campaign it's another catastrophic humiliation the prussians enter the fray again and what happens napoleon takes the seat of the prussian king's power that's a huge we're talking about morale factors throughout this that's a huge blow to morale um, we've also, of course, got the fact that within your scenario, Blucher is trapped. So it's not as though we can look at this situation and say, oh, yes, the lessons of 1806 have been learnt. In your scenario, it very much looks as though the opposite is the case. Um, so I, I absolutely would suggest that um, within the scenario that you've created, a destabilization of the coalition is on the table. And for all that I am known for, for not being Napoleon's greatest cheerleader, he's a hugely savvy individual um, and is acutely aware of the opportunity to divide and conquer. And the occupation of Berlin can be used as a propaganda coup to not only address the war weariness back in France, which we see exemplified in Coulancourt, amongst others, um, right at the heart of French high command, uh, but is also an issue back home. And so to be able to not only tout the fact that we've retaken Berlin, the Prussians might have come for us, and yet we're still beating them, but then also have that sort of hammer blow to the allies of the loss of the symbol of your one of your key allies' power is, is hugely significant for me. I, I agree with Zach. And I think one of the one of the things that I'm grappling with is kind of finding a way to have, and I know we are doing this for fun, right? But kind of finding a way to incorporate the actual history into your game plan. And what I mean by this, uh, the fall of Berlin has a, is a big blow, absolutely. Um, so, the, uh, and and we know that, for example, Castlereagh um, uh, receives in June. Um, reports from Stuart, who is a British commissioner, or British envoy, essentially, to St. Petersburg, who serves as a commissioner um, to the Allied armies. And Stuart tells him that, on one hand, uh, Prussia, the, I think the quote is that uh, there's a, a serious disorder in the Russian army. So he talks about kind of demor uh, the morale issue in, in the Russian army. But then he talks about that the Prussians are infinitely better in that respect, but, and this, there's a wonderful quote there, that Russians ride the bear over them. So there's the detention part of it, right? So how much of it can be exploited by Napoleon, maybe by issuing a proclamation and pointing out 
that Russia is being devastated to what cause maybe uh, uh, play more the the Russian uh, the Russian card and say you know you essentially are fighting a, a Russian war but here switch sides and I'll help you however both Stuart and uh, Robert Wilson who is actual British commissioner to the to the Allied army also spoke about the Prussian advantage in what they called the great uh, morale that their troops possessed. So how much of um, that would have been affected again uh, by, by the fall of Berlin? Would Napoleon's overtures to the, not necessarily the rank and file, maybe a rank and file issue a proclamation in German language uh, and, and, and have it distributed or, or kind of, you know, make a reaching out to the Prussian officer corps, whether there will be enough argument that the French can make uh, uh, in the wake of the fall of Berlin to, to convince them. That's why. The second is, um, um, I think uh, Czar was saying that his role here is simply symbolic. But that's, it, it's a problem on a couple of levels. Number one is that the statute on uh, active main army, which is the official regulation of the Russian army, specifically stated that if the Tsar was present with the army, he takes over the command unless he specifically issues a decree granting somebody that command. It seems that he has not done that, which means that he is commander-in-chief um, and his presence will constraint. So I think there has to be some accounting too for that. Alexander is not a commander-in-chief, but uh, oh, sorry, he's not a good kind of, um, uh, or skillful and experienced commander, but he does have a very keen sense of strategy. And that's something that oftentimes we uh, you know, used to downplay in him. But uh, I've, I've just uh, finished an, a, a reassessment of the Russian strategic planning on the eve of the war in 1812. And even though Alexander has operational challenges and operationally he may not be as, as skillful, he has the right strategic instincts. And we see that again in 1813. What do I mean? By well, in, in, in the wake of Bautzen and Lutzen, we know that there were secret negotiations uh, between the Allies and the Austrians. And we know that, for example, in late May, uh, Stadion um, was actually traveling from Vienna to uh, meet the uh, Prussians and Russians to discuss the terms upon which they were kind of luring the Austrians over. So essentially he was telling them that, tell me what you are offering. And depending on what you offer, um, we will, you know, the, the Kaiser will make a decision by June 1st to either uh, join the war and side with you or stay neutral, which is what exactly what Napoleon, I think, expressed. Um, and when they met and the meeting um, takes place uh, right uh, right on the eve of Bautzen, when they met, Stadion uh, talked to Hardenberg, who is the um, Russian uh, envoy and, and Nesselrod, the, the Russian envoy, uh, and in that meeting, uh, Sadion shared a special uh, memo that was produced by the Austrians. Um, and the memo um, kind of laid out the vision on what the Austrians expected uh, from, from the coalition, um, upon which 
right, upon which the Russians and Austrians then uh, developed a special plan that is known as the Wushin plan. And the Wushin plan was that of um, combined operations, Russians, Russians, and Austrians together. Now, this is a very interesting plan because it, it offers this kind of un, um, unprecedented vision of collabor collaborative um, relationship between three great powers. Um, the goal was to shift uh, the theater of war to the south, closer to the Austrian, uh, to the Austrian borders, and to remain um, to remain in close contact with each other. So here, when I look at the map that you have sent and shared, one of the ways that we can talk to Alexander and, and advise is would be to shift those forces that he has at his disposal further south, closer to the Austrian border under the Warsham Plan. Now, the Warsham Plan was not unanimously agreed upon on the Allied side. For example, Marquardt de Tolly, that the Tsar mentioned as possible commander-in-chief, of course, we know that he does become commander-in-chief. Marquardt de Tolly actually was against the Russian plan, arguing that the Russian army is simply not in condition to undertake operations of that nature uh, so close to the enemy. So instead of uh, shifting it further south and being close to Austria, Barclay de Tully actually wanted to cross the order and retreat closer to the Russian borders, which have been ideal for what Napoleon has in mind. And it is Alexander, again, once that strategic instinct that he has, it is Alexander who overrules him and forces him to follow the Russian plan because he understands how important it is to show the uh, to, to give a, a, a sign of goodwill and commitment to the Austrians. So, but that's, again, something that Alexander, I think, needs to account for in this scenario and something that maybe Napoleon can anticipate by give or by offering Austrians more generous terms. Zach? And Alex, as ever, is hugely eloquent um, and, and makes a, a really interesting point. And yes, I think... If the the big sort of dangling carrot during this period is, of course, the Austrians, right, and and trying to bring them into the war, and and Alex says quite rightly, you know, by shifting the focus to the south, it puts it puts more pressure fundamentally on the Austrians. Um, it makes the entire game inverted commas more dangerous in the sense that. Um, you've got this sort of looming presence and Napoleon's acutely aware that during this period, the Austrians are moving up troops. They are poised, ready to get involved. Um, and so if we do have this situation where you've got this looming mass of sort of 120,000 Austrian troops sitting on the, the border and then either side loses catastrophically, that or, or loses significantly at the very least that then has the the scope to turn the, the entire situation into a route because then suddenly the austrians cross the border on in favor of either side um and it would potentially be i don't appreciate that's not where you want to go with the war game but it would be really interesting to have the option for the austrians to join either side you know what is napoleon really willing to offer it was interesting that um yeah, as as Greg mentioned, 
Miles just sold Poland down the river. If you want Poland, take the Grand Duchy, take it off my hands. I don't care. You can have it. Um, Napoleon would never have done that in reality. Um, but yeah, I, I think Alec, I, I haven't got any sort of erudite comments to make in relation to what Alex said. I think he makes a, a fantastic point very well. So now I'm going to put both of you on the spot. You know, you've, 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 talked about a lot of the history uh which i which is fantastic about the considerations that austria had kind of weighing on it one way or the other and you now know where our war game stands and so specifically i'm going to ask the two of you to put on your austrian hats for a moment put on your metternich hat for just a moment here and um Go ahead and, and have a little brief discussion with each other on what you think Austria should do in the context of this specific game. Um, I think that the, the, the real question before you is, have the French done enough, both in the game and with what Miles presented to you today, to change history? Um, are, are the Austrians going to enter this conflict in the same manner they did historically? Or... Have you seen and heard enough that they would consider some form, perhaps, of delay, which is what Miles asked for? He asked for a one-month stay by the Austrians. Um, didn't offer a whole lot in exchange for it, uh, as as Alex pointed out. Uh, however, however, he has performed better on the battlefield uh, in 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 taking Berlin. You know, you mentioned the significance of Berlin. We didn't talk a whole lot about the significance of Hamburg, but honestly, Hamburg may not have been as pivotal in the Austrian sphere as it may have been for some of the other players. Um, so I'm going to turn it back to the two of you and ask, have the French done enough in order for us to rewrite history in a major or minor way? Have we triggered enough to, to satisfy Austrian caution that Maybe waiting a few few turns to see some extra cards is probably the wise thing to do. We turn it to the the esteemed experts. Back. Um, for me, even historically, I obviously I, I'm not a diplomat. I don't have grand strategic vision. I'm a historian. I, I read about the achievements of remarkable people and then try and make a living off the back of them. Um, but for me, historically, I am ever so slightly surprised that when you look at the momentum that Napoleon has going into this armistice, the Austrians are willing to commit in the way that they do. Um, within this scenario, as I said earlier, I think that problem is exacerbated. Not only is, not only is Napoleon winning in this scenario, he's winning convincingly. So for me, it's it's almost a no-brainer for the Austrians to look at this scenario and just be wary of the possibility of being bitten again, once bitten, twice shy, and, and all of that kind of mentality. Um, so I feel that there is enough here for, if not a month's stay of execution in terms of joining the Allies, um, certainly something like three weeks would, you know, enough time to see what Napoleon does with a resumption of hostilities. Um, however, if we put a demilitarized zone into the mix, I think perhaps that changes things from a strategic picture. So I think actually a demilitarized zone ends up being counter to Napoleon's interests when it comes to the Austrians, um, because you reset the, the campaign to a large extent. 
Um, so, I mean, I thought I was being quite harsh when I was sort of mentally thinking about what I might propose coming into this and thinking, well, a demilitarized zone between the Oda and the Elbin, the pony's never going to agree to that. That's just me being mean. Um, so it's it's funny that you you put that one forward, Miles. Doesn't mean it's right. Well, let me actually start with Napoleon and then uh, of the three uh, key kind of initiatives that he outlined uh, 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 outlined at the beginning of our conversation, I would actually ignore everything except for the first one. And of course, the first one was the Austrians. I would not offer or accept any negotiations with the Russians or Russians. In fact, in the wake of the capture of Berlin, in the wake of three victories, I would maintain pressure on them. Yes, Hamburg has fallen, but it's not in in the grand scheme of things for the operational um, or level. I don't think it affects my thinking, or at least if I were in Napoleon, my thinking would not have it as such, I would have maintained pressure on the uh, on the Allies. Um, I'm sure Napoleon has uh, um, intelligence reports from the prisoners of war, from the local population, testifying to the extent of the disarray, demoralization, confusion in the ranks of the Russians. Russians. That needs to be taken advantage of. There are fortresses that in the back, if, if we look at the map of uh, operational map that you've shared, there are three major fortresses that are effectively uh, hampering the lines of communication and supply for the allies. This is a Stettin, Kustrin, and Glogau. That needs to be taken care of, uh, taken advantage of. Um, so I would move, if, if I were advising Napoleon, I would advise him to put all his chips on, on Austrians increase his offer, not simply to dangle the Warsaw Illyria, but constructively consider what they have uh, considerations of, what they have the concerns on, uh, in order to assure that they are neutral. Right? Um, and for that, you need constructive, substantive concessions to make. So the question is not as much for Austrians, but rather for Napoleon, whether he's willing to make those concessions because he knows what the Austrians want. He doesn't know yet the extent, kind of the grand extent of what they want, but he knows that they're pissed off. They, he knows that they want the restructuring uh, in the international arrangements in Europe, and he should be open to considering them. So that's, I think, where the honor says, because in Vienna, in May and June of 1813, there was enough uh, desire, enough willingness to play on both sides, to see which way. As I mentioned, Stadion, when he meets with Hardenberg and Nesselrode, he tells them the Kaiser will make decision whether to stay neutral, which is effectively to start to support Napoleon, or to join the war, and it depended on what the uh, a coalition was willing to doing the response and the coalition clearly offered more than Napoleon did. Commi uh, um, accepting an armistice would be a major mistake, not just because we know that it will give a breathing space um, to, to, uh, to the allies, but most crucially it will 
fret away, kind of fritter away the initiative that you already have as Napoleon, you will off you will expose yourself to uh, diplomatic negotiations uh, through the intermediary that you actually need to have one on one with. So I. I, I don't see, so to respond to the, I think, Greg's question, I don't see that Napoleon is making convincing enough offer to the Austrians. And instead, what he needs to do is to consider tangible concessions that he will make to Austrians. That needs to be in Central Europe. That's Confederation of the Rhine. That's Italy. Yes, Illyria. And maybe... Warsaw, uh, but would Napoleon consider that, especially with Berlin in hands? If I may, Alex, I'm just curious about your, just to, sorry to bring it back to the history um, mm -hmm. for a moment here. I know we've sort of moved the conversation on, but do you, I look at what the Austrians want and I understand why the Austrians want what they want. They're looking at a, a re-stabilization of the balance of power in, in Central Europe. That, that's very obvious. And yet, when you look at Napoleon's position, I can't help but look at it and think they're asking too much. It's only with hindsight that I feel that the the Austrian position becomes vindicated. And, and so I, I wonder that anybody realistically thought there was any point putting this to Napoleon. It almost feels to me, and, and yes, I'm speaking in Napoleon's favour here. I'm sure some people will be shocked by this. Um, but but I feel why we like your podcast. <laughs> I feel like they're they're expecting too much from him um, I, at, at this moment in time. I, but I think what Greg and I can do is we can go back, and so there's a there's an Austrian counteroffer for a lot more, and then we can figure out in game terms if Napoleon accepts it, his victory total he has to win by a lot more to win the campaign, and he may or may not accept that. Um, but it's clear that that. I didn't offer enough, which shows the dangers of having a cursory knowledge when you're debating people who have a very deep knowledge, uh, a, a lesson I constantly learn in the business world, uh, but one now I've learned in more Um But I, I, think, I think it's clear to me that, that I didn't offer enough. There might be a counteroffer, and then Greg and I figure out in game terms what that is, which I think is... I have to win by not by one victory point, but by five. We'll, 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 we'll figure it out kind of abstract that way. But Miles, um, it sounds to me like, I mean, this has been an awesome discussion. And what, what I'm getting from Zach and Alex is that is that the Austrians are in play for the French, but that the price would be steep. Much higher. Yeah. Al Alex is articulating that in order to satisfy Austrian demands, the French are going to have to be willing to pay we'll figure it out in game terms, but yeah. a, ma a major price. Is that, is yeah. that what I'm getting, Alex? I mean, is that it's, we're going to have to set a pretty high bar here, but it's doable. Is that the takeaway? Yes. And, and here, let me again, bring the reality because I think that should inform some of the things that Miles uh, or Napoleon would do. And that is when the Pleschwitz armistice indeed took place and there were negotiations taking place, uh, Napoleon did not simply reject uh, Metternich's off, uh, uh, offers as sometimes is envisioned. Not at all. He actually 
he does have that kind of outburst. He has that famous meeting with Metternich when he shouts and yells. He drops the hat repeatedly, thinking that Metternich will take it up. And as, and, and as such, will kind of show his subservience. Metternich never does. So Napoleon actually has to pick it out himself, which is kind of lame, right? <laughs> but ultimately, Napoleon considers the um, these, these terms. And he accepts some, and he rejects others. So... I remind you, for example, that he never clearly responded to the Allied demand or to the Austrians, actually, demands about uh, renouncing protectorate of the Confederation of the Rhine. All right. But he did tentatively agree to dissolution of the Duchy of Warsaw. He did tentatively agree to return of Illyria, all of Illyrian provinces. He refused to return Danzig to Prussia. And it's, I think uh, in the wake of Ber fall of Berlin, that decision probably would be even strengthened. But he counter-offered uh, counter to the Allies to create Danzig or turn Danzig into a free city. Right? So in historical case, we know that Napoleon was not as rigid as we sometimes betray him, that he was willing to horse-border even in the wake of those two great victories that he scored in the spring. So there has to be a more quid pro quo, especially between Napoleon and Austrians. If I may, though, just as a, a small counter, Emperor Francis was, in the end, prepared to give up a little himself in the interests of peace. Um, Hamburg being an obvious point here. I know within the context of our conversation, we haven't really touched on Hamburg because I agree with Alex in the grand strategy terms. It's It's not really that key, but... The original proposals in relation to Hamburg, um, Emperor France was prepared to give up and was also prepared to concede on Illyria to a degree as well. So uh, the only point that I'm really sort of making here is that it's not as though the Austrians hold all of the cards and could ask for anything. Um, and this is why earlier I mentioned sort of Metternich and perhaps that greater inclination to play hardball, um, perhaps encouraged in that by Kulankar. Uh, if we're to believe Metternich when he describes his interaction with Kulankor, which it's Metternich, so about, I believe him about as far as I can throw him. Um, <laughs> that's probably just being a sensible historian. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's fair to say the Austrians are, are key to this. Um, it's starting to sound as though we don't have a ceasefire. I, it 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 doesn't. I mean, I, I want to recap a couple issues that Miles and I brought up in game terms that don't sound like there's much room for negotiation here. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the French so far have not expressed any willingness to vacate any of their fortresses. Mm -hmm. And Alex, of course, is is chiming in that that would be a smart play for the French. Yep. Um, this this surprising offer of a demilitarized zone is on the table, although as the czar, I am not keenly interested in that if the French are not going to concede any of their fortress positions. Uh, I am not particularly willing to give up Hamburg, and Miles doesn't seem particularly interested in taking it. Um, so all of those issues appear to be at a standstill. There are two, two minor remaining questions that I think are in play here that we want to throw to our historian. Well, one to Miles and one to the historians. I'll start with Miles. Miles, uh, are the French interested in any extension, even brief, of the armistice? Nope. Okay. So our armistice will last the historical length of time. The last thing that I want to touch on for our historians, is a topic that has not come up at all, 
but we probably should address it. We've talked a lot about the Austrians, a little bit about the Poles and, and, and the Prussians and how they're feeling after Berlin. But interestingly, we have not talked about one of the other major minor powers at play here, the Saxons. Uh, the Saxons are fielding a lot of troops historically in the fall, initially for the French. Famously, they're going to change sides. They're in a really precarious historical position here because they are at the heart of the yep. confluence of all these major powers. They are the battleground. So um, I, I want to throw this out to both Alex and Zach, and, and I would love to get just a little bit of historical perspective on the really slippery situation, the precarious situation the Saxons find themselves in. And then I also want to ask you at the tail end of that, does our war game in the spring change anything for the Saxons at this point? Or are they going to continue to be in the same historical role that they faced? Um, Alex, why don't we start with you? What's What the heck are the Saxons supposed to do in all of this? Um, uh, shut up and follow the wars. <laughs> Wise counsel. <laughs> Uh, there is not much uh, Frederick Augustus um, can really do. That's uh, King of Saxony, the, the Duke of Warsaw. Um, he, uh, if we look at the map, um, he, he, he's not even full control of his own territory. So uh, we know that uh, Napoleon, so in, in historical case, he won two battles. In, in your uh, scenario, he won third. Uh, we know that even after the armistice, Napoleon will go on and fight another battle, and that will be coincidentally the battle on the outskirts of the uh, Saxon capital, and he will actually win that battle, So, and which will ensure Saxon loyalties for another few months until, finally, uh, only in the setbacks of uh, September-October, the uh, Saxons will finally make a decision to switch sides. So... In historical case, right, it took the sustained military defeats of the French army of September and early October to convince them to to change. I don't see them changing that in this case, especially with uh, Napoleon's Grand Armée in, in full control of, of Saxony. So they will have to bear the costs of the war. They will have to bear the cost of requisitioning, uh, the uh, military payments and, and all of it. No, uh, hoping, hoping that once this war ends, Napoleon will be generous in in sharing the spoils. But equally, Napoleon is going into bat for his Saxon ally in the sense that whilst he was prepared historically to consider a dissolution of the Duchy of Warsaw, he nonetheless, and this became a sticking point of the negotiations, he wanted some kind of compensation for. Um, the King of Saxony for the fact that he would have lost the territory that came um, with that that title of the Duke of Warsaw. Um, part of that is obviously being savvy. You don't want to hack off one of your allies who's, you know, providing a substantial portion of your army. Um, but it does show, and this is very true of Napoleon generally. He was one to reward loyalty. So, as Alex says, you shut up and you hope that Napoleon wins because the the all the cards all of all of your chips are on Napoleon by this point that there is no other option yeah if you're Frederick Augustus you you certainly remember that you are king because emperor deigned so 
right? <laughs> Your kingship <laughs> is is less than seven years old, my friend. <laughs> but all Arguably, I can hope is that my, my, my Austrian friends observe how generous I am with those who are on my side versus the czar who imprisons his allies. Detained, I think. Detained is the word. Detained. We, we don't mention the Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll leave the we'll leave the Spanish out of this. Uh, I, I think one of the uh, I don't know again how much you can account for it, but I think there has to be some kind of um, uh, accounting taken of of the British success uh, in in the peninsula, yeah. uh, because uh, it. it since we we do have an armistice, right? As it seems, we've agreed that the armistice will be signed; it will not be extended. But the I think that is to go back to my earlier point. Uh, there has to be no armistice at all. That's what um, I'm I'm arguing is that Napoleon has to maintain pressure on the Allies without the armistice. Yes, he's challenging. Yes, he's hemorrhaging the men. But armistice, even of the short duration, offers the uh, allies ability to regroup. Uh, let's not forget that the Prussians were able to rebuild the landwehr, or at least start to build up landwehr during that short armistice. But more crucially, that short armistice will last through June. June is when Battle of Vittoria is fought. The news of that will reinvigorate the coalition, will make an impact and kind of impression on, on Austrians. Because how do you want to kind of listen to Napoleon's rebuffing you of your offer if you know that his army is being crushed in, in Spain? Well, gentlemen, this has been an absolute fascinating conversation. You guys are both so deep into the history. And I mean, if I, I know you're familiar with what we do on our YouTube channel and you know, we, we aspire to more than just war games, right? We've, we've always been, had a really serious interest in, in the history and trying to marry the two and getting to talk to historians and experts is, is a huge part of that. Um, and I know that we have discussed and intend to interview both of you separately just about the history in order to bring more of that historical context to our campaign. Um, I do want to wrap up our conversation today with um, just a fun question for you both, which is that uh, at this point, you're you're now pretty darn familiar with where things stand in our campaign as we get ready to shift into the fall. There's still some of these big dominoes that we don't know exactly how they're going to go based on the discussion today. But how do you think all of this is going to end, knowing where we stand right now? Do you think that the French have a shot to really pull this thing off? And as a quick follow up to that historically did napoleon have a shot to pull this thing off i mean 1813 was catastrophic for him historically i don't know how it's going to play out in our war game who do you think wins the war game knowing what you know and could have napoleon really done this in 1813 um zach let's let's start with you um in terms of the war game i think alex makes a really astute point napoleon can't afford to keep with this armistice he has to keep pushing um and and on the basis of this scenario i don't see obviously everything sort of swings on the austrians but at this moment in time i don't think there's there's anything to significantly challenge napoleon i think there's enough going on here that actually he's he's going to win this i i genuinely can see no pressure um, there i can see Bruca <laughs> being crushed quite quickly 
then sort of looping around and and sort of um, hitting um, Tomasov from a couple of sides. You you can this is how, this is what Napoleon does: maneuver, pin, pivot. That's that's his bread and butter. Um, so yeah, I if I if I were a betting man, I would be betting on Miles right now. Historically, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because I thought I would come in with pro Napoleon position, but I've been out Napoleon by. <laughs> my reputation is in tatters after this. I'm not going to be able to ever look um, my fellow Brits in the eye because apparently we're I, all. I do hope, Greg and Miles, you recorded all of it and will share it so I can do memes and cubes and whatever it is of Zach actually. Oh, we're, we're doing a TikTok of Zach. <laughs> there you go. I love it. <laughs> Make sure you cut that portion as separate. Um, because um I'll put on a historical determinist hat and I would say Napoleon will lose. Because in order for him to win, he will have to think unlike Napoleon, unlike himself. Um I do not I don't see him making the concessions that are needed to keep Austria neutral in the wake of those three great victories, in the wake of that sense that he can pull it off himself. And once he does that, once he embraces that idea, I think we get into that deterministic, or at least I'm getting into that deterministic view of arguing that Austrians will join the coalition, will contribute that quarter million, those quarter million men, and will reshift, kind of shift the theater of war uh, in in favor of coalition, I think Alex is is bang on the money there because from a historical perspective, this hung as we've discussed all the way through this. This hung on the Austrians, yeah. and he, for me, he was within touching distance of an agreement. There's sort of an element of climb down from both sides, and yet it's the way in which that agreement gets communicated. Yeah. It's I, the delay in sending. The, that sort of desire to sort of yeah. come and sleep on it, that sense of of not responding directly, that therefore means that the deal doesn't arrive in time, so that Metternich can then turn around at the stroke of midnight and go, Austria is now at war with France, and that's the point at which Napoleon loses his empire fundamentally. From this point on, remarkable though the eighteen fourteen campaign may be, from that point yeah. on. He's on a one-way ticket fundamentally to to Elba. Well, I think I think it's a tall order for Napoleon in the fall. It's an interesting proposition to accelerate the campaign. Greg and I'll have to talk about, but this has been a wonderful conversation, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Uh, I am chagrined at my level of ignorance of the history when I talk to you guys. Thank you for the opportunity, and I would remind Alexander what he has uh, said uh, on the eve of 1812, that he and Napoleon cannot coexist. He famously, You famously stated, sire, that him or me, together we cannot be. You understand what is at stake. So even if you lose another battle, I think you can, you can stay in field. You can regroup. You have vast resources back at home. You can go back regroup and continue to fight. Well, I'm very excited to see what will happen in our campaign because we have no idea. I mean, that's the fun of playing war games, right? I mean, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And I do think based on today's conversation that we are going to 
reset the chessboard in a couple of unexpected ways just to take into account everything that we learned in this conversation. One other question I'll throw in historically here that we kind of briefly touched on. I'm just just curious. Um, I forget which one of you mentioned the Swedes. You know, some somebody mentioned Bernadotte briefly. Um, what role? What I, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm just genuinely curious. What role, if any, is he playing in the armistice talks? I mean, he's the Swedes aren't really in play at this point, are they? Like Bernadotte's committed to the Allies, or am I mistaken? Is could have he been in play for the French? Well, it's debatable whether or not Bernadotte's even at play at Leipzig, <laughs> right? <laughs> he doesn't want to get involved. Um, you can understand why. Absolutely. Um, but my understanding is that there, nobody's particularly paying attention to the Swedes during all of this. Um, obviously, Napoleon is going to be fuming um, about the situation. So, yeah, the, uh, for me, the, they're not even really a consideration I, I have offered the player who is the uh bernadotte in the game st petersburg along with norway as prize for oh yeah right yours to <laughs> that's very generous uh, exactly, yeah <laughs> i'm surprised you. you're so generous with the swedes and not willing to consider anything of that sort with austrians who have much more to offer um the answer is that um Sweden is actively collaborating with the coalition, but uh, in a clandestine manner. Uh, Bernadotte already had a meeting with Alexander, a secret meeting uh, with Alexander at Abo. He already uh, has a treaty with the British, the Treaty of Orebro. Uh, in both Treaty of Abo and uh, Treaty of Orebro, uh, committed Sweden on the coalition side. Sweden has not come out swinging yet that's where the armistice plays such an important role that's where towards the end of the summer Swedes will be actively involved in historical case but sweden is clearly clearly um inching uh towards uh the coalition it's, behind the scenes it's already part of this coalition but overtly it will be there and in more i think equally important is that during the during the meetings with Alexander, Bernadotte consistently advised him on military matters. So Bernadotte is the marshal of, of France, I would say the most successful of them, ultimately. Um, as, as a marshal of France who knew Napoleon intimately, who knew how he operated, how he thought, had a lot of interesting insights to share. Uh, that should uh, that certainly influence uh, Alexander's decision-making in 1812, and there's no reason to doubt that uh, he, his mindset have, would have changed uh, in 1813. He's a man I've never really understood, especially in context of 1813. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know enough about him to answer this, but why, for a man of his apparent caution, why doesn't he just sit on the sidelines longer? I mean, we know that his adopted father, you know, the king of Sweden, is is actually pro-French, is pro-Napoleon. Bernadotte was a French marshal, maybe didn't have the greatest personal relationship with Napoleon, but clearly he he has a, a pro-French background. Why, why jump in with the Allies so early when everything's still on the table? Why? What does he get out of this? Why wouldn't he just wait? Because he understands what is at stake. Um, he understands that if 
if Napoleon wins in 1812, uh, you will have what is sometimes referred to as a universal empire in Europe. And the last thing he wants to, be, to do is to play a second fiddle to, to Napoleon in that uh, political construct. So Bernadotte would not have become king without Napoleon. Let's state that out right. But once he becomes the king, and he, he's a crown regent now, he will on the way right to become a, uh, uh, a king. He becomes, like Louis, uh, Napoleon's own brother in the Netherlands, right? He becomes clearly a Swedish ruler. That is, he, the national interest, however you define Sweden, becomes his interests. Yes, there is a level of personal animosity towards Napoleon, too. Uh, but I think in many respects, what Bernadotte does in 1812-1813 serves Sweden's interests to a great degree. Let's not forget that ultimately Sweden comes out of this war pretty, pretty well. Loses Finland, but gains all of Norway. Um, so, uh, so I think Bernadotte is playing a smart game. I in, that, in that, I okay. yeah, in that the armistice gives him that opportunity even more so. The, this this breathing space during which he can figure out which way the wind is blowing, and this is where if. It's not just about kind of keeping pressure on Prussians and Austria, but it's also keeping pressure on Sweden uh, by refusing an armistice and by continuing to engage. That you make sure that the Sweden is paying attention. Three battles lost. Is it worth? <laughs> is it worth landing troops in Pomerania? I always thought Bernadette switched sides because the only way really to secure his throne was to secure the Royal Navy. Um, because if you're going to invade Sweden, you got to. You got to have a navy to back you up because you can't go the line route. Um, Bernadotte, um, in, in July of 1812, uh, Bernadotte was able to negotiate treaty with the British, and that effectively safeguarded the, uh, the Swedish shores. So um, that was a smart move. Um, so he would not have been concerned about that element as such. The question, and then he was again. The question would be maybe to ask if Bernadotte was concerned about Russia, but the fact that the treaty uh, with Russia was signed in 1809, Sweden already has forsaken its claims to, to Finland, and most crucially, Bernadotte accepted the loss of Finland and switched his attention elsewhere. So that meant that the eastern border of Sweden more or less is settled, and he's willing to um, lose Finland in order to gain Russian uh, support elsewhere. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's uh, we've we've taken up a lot of your time. You've been really generous, and um, we'll we'll definitely reach out to set up another interview with 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 both of you sometime, hopefully in the next few weeks, while it's all still fresh. And um, yeah, Miles, anything else from you? No, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this session. I've learned a lot. A lot. I hope you guys thought it was a good use of your time. It, it, it's it's clearly a real privilege to be able to talk to experts like yourselves. Thank you so much for re uh, reaching out. Um, you better start rolling those dice well. And sounds, <laughs> sounds like we're not having armistice, right? Gonna have a really hard discussion. Armistice is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.